the man who loves his job doesn't work a day in his life. And you know, cooking is is not a job; it's it's a pleasure. Um, yeah, you know, it looks like a job because yeah, you know, we have to do some graft and yeah, we have to do some service and yeah, we have to do the mise en place to get ready for service. But it's it's a joy. This is the crackling. I'm Anthony Huckstep. When chefs are young, they're often eager to impress, do a little bit too much to dishes and overwork produce to stand out on the plate. As renowned chef Rob Cabord has matured, he's realized the true mastering of your craft lies in restraint and bringing maximum flavor to each and every dish. Rob, how are you? Good morning, Huck. How are you doing, mate? I'm great. It's good to get you uh, on the podcast. We chatted it feels like years ago on our sibling podcast, Deep in the Weeds. Uh, how's things? Yeah, things are things are great. Lots lots has has changed. Uh, nothing has changed. I'm still cooking, but yeah, lots 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 has changed. I think since the last time we spoke, um, I think last time we spoke, I was I was putting food in boxes, and I, I can yeah, I still sometimes get a little you know someone walking over my grave thinking of that time. But uh, yeah, let, let's let's not go deep in the weeds. That's not. That's that's not why we're here today, right? That's right. Well, there's lots to talk about because you've worked at some incredible restaurants and you're doing some amazing things now. Um, whereabouts are you in Victoria these days, mate? So after after my 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 city my city, you know, I go, like I've always been kind of more an urban creature. But we sold our, our city restaurant America quite a few years ago. Now we you know we actually made a uh, by great surprise a little bit of money uh, from this. Uh, well, you know, it's, you don't hear that a lot from sales of restaurants. It's usually, you know, doom and gloom. But Ron and I were very fortunate to sell it with, with a profit, um, and we decided to buy regional. Um, so we're we're probably an hour and a half out of Melbourne, a place called Wheat Sheaf. It's near Dalesford, and I think kind of, yeah. I, 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 at that stage, I was still working at Key. Um, yeah, I, I came back to Melbourne, did a little pop up just to. Yeah, just to you know, get rid of the the, the key jitters, so to say. And um, then COVID hit. Then I did Charles Street Lane, and kind of I just got jack off working in the city. Kind of like it, it was. I mean, I've got eight rich, um, and I used to be there on the weekends and mow and do things to my garden, and then go back to town. And it started to depress me, to be really honest. And I just wanted to be more at home, uh, like uh, just be with Brom and be on in the house be you know part of the house um, and so I kind of gave up urban living for uh, Wheat Chief and I, I'll tell you man it's it's fucking quiet there it's weird <laughs> like, you know I've lived in Brunswick Brunswick for you know nearly a decade and I'm very used to trams at you know one in the morning and in Wheat Chief there's there's no trams there's nothing quiet it's very very quiet so that took a little yeah, that took a little time to to get used to, um, but now that I'm there, it's it's great, and you know, I got myself. A, 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 it's it's a really lovely job, actually. I work at the the Surly Goats uh, to just cook food, create food, cook. Um, I don't really have a title. I'm just there as cook, glorified commie. Come like we don't really handle in in, in titles there, which is is delightful. Um, and the the owner um, Dave Dave Wilcox Dave and Vanessa uh, they are amazing they're an amazing couple um, that are well embedded in the in the Hepburn Dalesford 
uh, community and we cook local local produce very well. We do set menus. Um, I think that's kind of, you know, it used to be a la carte, but, you know, the remnants, the remnants of, of COVID kind of, kind of led us to go, well, let's see if we do, you know, um, set menus. So we do four snacks, entree, main dessert, um, and the menu changes every week. Nothing gets repeated. Um, and as a, as a, as a cook, that is so liberating. Kind of like that is just absolutely delicious because you can go, right, cool. This week I'm cooking with a little Japanese sleds. This week I'm going hard European. Um, yeah, last 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 week, man, we, we had the first of the, the asparagus, the first of the, or not the first of the artichoke, but the artichokes were just an amazing size. Broad beans, peas, garlic flowers that we foraged. Uh, the week before that, we, we got some morels from the mountain nearby. Um, and it's just, it's as a, as a, as a cook, it's, it's nearly a wet dream of produce there. Or it's, it's one of those just amazing, amazing regions where everything is pretty much available and it's seasonal. Yeah. We're, we're between five and seven degrees cooler than Melbourne. Feel the seasons when it's cold there, it is cold. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's great because you actually cook to. Yeah, what the seasons should be, and that's that's uh, yeah, an amazing, amazing part to be it. When uh, when we we're off air just before, you mentioned something about uh, being involved with a theatre. Um, tell me, tell me, tell me a little bit about this role that you have. So, kind of, because because at the Surly Gold we work four days a week. Um, I I have time, and it's it's something that uh, as a, as a yeah as a chef in, in the higher end restaurants I've never really had a lot of free time yeah you have days off but you know you use the first day to do your laundry the second day to recoup and then you're kind of back into the groove um, and now having three days off a week I kind of found myself with with spare time and yeah I, I'm doing a little uh, beer pop-up um, the floating swine where I do a five course beer dinner with matched beers from a region whatever I fancy and uh, in one of those events, I, I met an old friend of mine, and he goes, like, "Man, I, I got this guy, and he's a playwright. He's doing this this play about a chef, but his, his chef is not real." I, what do you mean? Kind of like just you know, chefs. Yeah. They're, they're pretty easy creatures, you know, to describe. And you know, they they're food driven. They're generally you know, can be a bit of an asshole because it's about the food. So I, I ended up having a coffee with 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 this guy Nick uh, Nick Parr, and he was in in the thick of writing a play called Gluttony. The last three weeks we've been doing rehearsals, dress rehearsals, and the, coming up the next two days we're doing a showcase, and we're we're actually going to try try to sell this play, and it's it's in, one it's incredibly good fun as a chef to teach an actor how to hold a knife. Uh, but then to actually make this actor cook a three-course meal um, is is even more fun because you know the actor is kind of faking his way through it, and I'm behind the scenes cooking the real food. Wow! <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, yeah, it's it's the it's it's so distant from what I do. Normally, you know, people come into the dining room, they sit down, have a drink. You know, they call away entree or take the order, call away entrees. Yeah, call away mains. Yeah, when they call mains, it's eight minutes. We put yeah mains up. Um, 
with actors and and the ensemble is pretty big there's there's eight actors uh, there's two backstage guys myself um but actors don't work by clock they work verbal cues uh, so one of my verbal cues uh, to get my entree dish up is uh i have to go to the toilet but that that particular cue if the actor doesn't go to the toilet I'm waiting for him to go because, you know, the rest of the play kind of hinges on him to go. In one of the dress rehearsals, I was ready and, you know, the bastard didn't go to the toilet and kind of didn't whine. And so I'm like, man, come on, you have to get up now and go to the toilet. Uh, so it's it's a very foreign, very foreign, but incredibly good fun. And as I said, man, the ensemble we have is, is like amazing. The actors are amazing. The, the play is incredibly clever and great um and it's 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 now that we're getting to the stage that we you know we've done dress rehearsals and we're doing the showcase i see some of myself in in uh aaron who's playing chef max as like, oh fuck he's a he's a scary <laughs> it's a little too driven <laughs> well, that does sound extraordinary. And I, w- I want to get into sort of what you're doing now in detail in a little while. But um, take us back to when you were young. You're from Holland originally. To, where did you grow up and what sort of role did food play for you? Um, so I grew up in uh, Amsterdam and, and kind of one of the, 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 the suburban towns of Amsterdam, a place called uh, Hilversum. Food, food was... Um, Kind of given my 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 mom and dad read a um, a toko a Indonesian supermarket and and the the interesting part of that is is that neither of them there's no Indonesian heritage in our family they're they're as Dutch as Dutch can be uh, but my grandfather had a, a fish shop um, and ice that was you know what pretty much went hand in hand in those days. After the Second World War, there was a, a massive migration out of Indonesia, um, and they they had some refugee camps nearby. And the Dutch government blessed them, you know, gave these these people out of Indonesia food vouchers for potatoes and white bread. And these people had never seen potatoes or white bread, uh, let alone that they knew what to do with it. So they, you know, started trading with my grandpa. Um, it started off with, you know, can we trade instead of bread with fish well my grandpa was mates with a baker so that would work itself out and i think at some stage one of the the indonesian refugees had asked my grandpa if he could get rice and my grandpa was like rice fuck is rice gonna like hey just bread me uh and it's it, it sounds it actually sounds horrifically racist but you know this is early 50s at the best and it was completely different times. And so my grandpa went to the harbor and, you know, asked around um, as he's collecting his fish for the day. And he found a boat that just came from Java and they had a bit of rice. And so he bought the rice and started trading with these refugees in rice. And from rice came ginger and lemongrass. And and it kind of just grew uh, completely out of hand. And my mom and dad now have a shop that's probably one of the best tocos in Holland. Um, so kind of food was always a given, but it was never really food as such. Like I, I, I price mainly as I was growing up because that's what we cooked at home. Um, and it's, yeah, food, food was always there. 
Um, and I think my interest of food wasn't really for food, but more for the hospitality, the, the conviviality, um, the things that happen at the table, like how come people are so relaxed when they're eating and have a cup of tea or a glass of wine and kind of like, it was more the, maybe even the servitude of uh, being able to provide a meal for someone else. Um, I've always seen it as, as, you know, the chef, yeah, the one-on-one of chefing, I have to feed people. Um, and it doesn't matter how fancy I make it, people still have to get something in their tummies that they go, wow, that was, fuck, I feel full now here, yeah, I'm happy. And I think that that's always been my prime directive um, once I started, you know, cooking kind of thing, like make sure people eat, they're happy, um, you know, balance balance your portion sizes and all that sort of stuff and make sure it's a balanced meal. But if, if, if God, my, my worst nightmare is if, if I ever get someone that walks away hungry, like, oh my God, I failed. Kind of, it doesn't matter what dishes I've got, but I failed. Like this person came to eat food and they, they, you know, they're going to go get a kebab on the way out. Kind of like, that's my worst nightmare, to be very honest. Pork is such a big part of um, many different cultures and cuisine in the world. But what about the, the Dutch? Is it a big part of their cuisine? And do you remember sort of pork dishes growing up? Yeah, pork pork is, is much bigger in, I think, most of Europe, actually, especially the northern parts of Europe. Um, there is not a lot of cattle around. Um, yes, there is there's dairy cattle because um, the Dutch make an incredible amount of milk and cheese. Um, but they don't really have eating cattle. Um, there, there, there is some, of course. Yeah, we, we we do have steak, but nowhere near to what you see here in the, in, in the Australian uh, butchers. Uh, same for lamb. It's it's pretty, you know, it's one. It's very expensive in in Europe, um, and two, you don't see a lot of it. So pork is kind of like around. It's like chicken and pork is at every butcher, and well, all the cuts. And I, you know, kind of, yeah, I'm sure I, as a as a small child or as a growing up young lad, I I ate a lot of pork because it was just part of the diet. Um, one of the things that for me always stood out is that my my grandma, um, and yeah, my grandma wasn't wasn't rich. She wasn't poor, but she was incredibly um, proactive in in making savings. You know, kind of like every meal stretched two or three times uh, frugal would be you know was a very frugal woman and i remember walking in as uh, maybe a seven or eight year old um into her kitchen in in amsterdam and uh, i'd stayed the night you know sleep over at grandma's and i walked in and looking at the, at the kitchen sink she was shaving what what you know looked like a head she was shaving a head i, I kind of just stood there completely memorized and i remember this so vividly that you know she's shaving this head and kind of like as she's shaving it, it, it reveals to be a pig. I mean, I can recognize a pig and it's a pig. And as, 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 you know, she's finished the shave and then she got a toothbrush and she started brushing its teeth. And I'm, I think, I think at that stage I must have shrieked, sighed, made some sort of noise because she looked at me and she goes like, well, you know, we don't know what its last meal was. And it was such a, like, man, like, this thing is getting a scrub before it's going into my pot. And, like, to today, I may, I so regret not asking more about this. But, you know, I was too young. I didn't, 
I didn't understand. Like I understand, I understand now. Like yeah, you wanna you wanna give it a, a shave because you don't want those whiskers in your you know in your terrain. And you know the the last meal of a pig is questionable. Um, you know, especially if you have criminal friends. And it's it's one of those things where, um, you know, to today I still shave the pig's head um, in 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 the kitchen. And it's yeah, it's 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 a given and. So she would do the shave, the, the, the toothbrush, and then she would put it in a pot and just boil it, you know, for uh, maybe a day, like low and slow. And then the whole thing got lifted out. Uh, the cheeks were sliced on some rye bread. The jowl was, you know, just back into a soup. And every scarric was used uh, to, to go into a soup or a stew or, a, you know, whatever, whatever she was making. And we would just end up with the skeleton head. And that, that was like, and I still like, that's still one of the things that I remember so vividly that, you know, that there was nothing ever left on that, on that head. Uh, everything got used in, in an array of things. And that, that big set used to feed lots of people. Yeah. It's, and that's, that's my, my, like when people go like, yeah, first memory of Paul. Well, yeah, probably that one. Yeah, it could have it could have made me vegan. I'm glad it didn't. <laughs> tell tell us about the first sort of couple of years of your career as a chef. What were the really important sort of venues and people that you worked with as you started to build your career? So after I finished uh, culinary school, I I needed to get out of Holland. I I I looked I looked at French food uh, with this this awe of like holy shit, these guys can cook. Originally, I really, I really wanted to go to Switzerland because I thought that was the the pinnacle of of French cooking. Um, but I just, I just, I couldn't get in, and like the the you know they were very, very elitist uh, in 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 the kitchens, and uh, it was much easier for me to go to London, find someone that you know does nice French food and learn in there. And I was I was kind of lucky. I ended up um, at the Waldorf Hotel um, on on, on Roadwich, and at that stage, the hotels were still places where everything got done in house. Um, so the butchery department did all the butchery. Uh, they used to get whole carcasses in, you know, argies, whole fish, and they they used to butcher everything, and everything got used throughout the hotel. So you know, if you did a chicken. Uh, the 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 breast would go to the club sandwich. The thigh would go into you know the the dining room, room service, and it was just an amazing again kind of you know frugality of using produce by buying whole produce. And so my 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 training school, my learning school was just spectacular. I, I moved for the first couple of years just within the one hotel from section to section. Learn- Everything there was to know about sandwiches, everything there was to know about room service. I did night bakery to learn bread, croissants, venoiserie. Uh, I did banqueting. Uh, like, and I, I just learned, yeah, I was like a sponge. And then I think kind of probably towards the end of the, the second second year there, um, they put me in the a la carte, in the, in the Palm Court, which was a, a Michelin-starred restaurant, very Frenchy. Uh, Lots of Garrett on service and cloches and quite quite opulent. 
Um, and I did service there and I just, I remember coming out of my first service going, yeah, just adrenaline, like, holy crap, man. Like the adrenaline of service, like, how do I get more of this? And so I started really looking at kind of, yeah, how do I get to have this adrenaline shot every service, every day? Um, and then I worked there in the palm court for a bit. Uh, I kind of changed jobs. I went to the Landmark Hotel uh, and worked with a guy called Andrew McLeish. And again, we had a we had a Michelin star, very French, very hardcore French food. Um, but he in, introduced me to people like Nico Landis. So he introduced me, yeah, the River Cafe back then, um, Quatre Maisons. Um, and so every penny I had, I spent on eating in these wonderful fucking places. And I, I was I was broke, man, all the time. Kind of like I I barely had enough money to pay rent some months. Um, but I ate <laughs> I ate a lot of amazing food. Um, and I think as a youngling then, you know, there was still this very much this, this, you know, if he comes to eat and he spends, you know, his, his hundred quid with us, you know, we'll, we'll give him a free glass of this or a, you know, an extra course or come into the kitchen and say hello. So you get these, these over the top experiences that, you know, I was just buzzing coming out of some of these restaurants going, fuck. During all of that, I met this wonderful Australian girl, Bronwyn, who, um, yeah, who is and she had said one day, like, hey, you want to you wanna come check out Australia? And I'm like, let's go on a holiday. So we went on a holiday to Australia and I ended up here going, holy moly, this is, you know, this is, this is a beautiful country. And, you know, we ate at some restaurants and I, I saw some of the produce and some of the stuff that was happening here in, you know, late 99, 2000s. And I think Australia then really started to look at what was happening in kitchens. Um, and so I, I kind of took the move, you know, to Australia in here and I haven't, haven't really looked back since kind of like I'm happy, happy cooking here. Well, you've been part of some pretty incredible restaurants in your time in Australia. Um, tell us about, you know, those first couple of years in Australia, where, where did you find your foot in the door? So foot in the door, kind of like we were living in, in Rutherglen, uh, my wife, Bromin is from Rutherglen. So we were living there and I, I tried to get into uh, Melbourne, I, you know, back then I, I still sent my resume and, and, uh, you know, a little introduction letter, uh, by mail <laughs> that, that was our email, email has, had just started kind of thing. And that wasn't really a thing for restaurants, I don't think. And I couldn't really get into Melbourne. I, I, I wanted to go to Melbourne. Uh, I tried for the original food and wand. Um, yeah, the, the, there was very much a brick pack happening here in Melbourne and Actually, when I ate here, it was very similar to London, and it was kind of like, yeah, no, I'm not sure if this is me. I, I have done this. I want something something different. Um, wrote the same letter to a couple of guys in Sydney, uh, Guillaume Brahimi, uh, uh, who else? The MG Garage, which was Yanni Christens back then, uh, Damien, uh, Damien Pignolet. And all those guys responded by letter. So I got a letter like two weeks later saying, hey, thank you for your application. We, we don't have anything right now, but if you're in Sydney, come say hello. And so I went like, well, you know, actually what, maybe what we should do, maybe I should be on the ground in Sydney. And at that stage, I didn't really have a, a concept of distance. I thought, you know, Sydney would be, you know, 
Amsterdam, Amsterdam, Brussels kind of thing. I, shit, I didn't know that was 10 hours. Yeah. 10 hour drive. Um, and so kind of like, then when we got to Sydney, I actually understood that like, yeah, this is, uh, I now get why they say, hey, we're not sure we're going to do anything with you because you're miles away. Um, and so I was in Sydney, did the same thing, kind of like started saying hello to people. I, I ended up kind of working for Guillaume Brahimi um, in this place called, uh, was then Bilsons. And he had a, he left, he left his sous chef in charge. And, and I, I, yeah, to be very honest, I didn't really like the sous chef that much. He was doing very classic kind of neff food. Um, but then this guy, Peter Gilmore, arrived. And Peter was just talking about food like I had never heard anyone talk about food. Like he was, he was going to take this duck, confit it, and put it back together and make this brick and we're going to serve it on a bit of mash and this and that. And, you know, he was going to take pork belly, uh, which is such a, you know, was such an inferior cut. Um, and he was going to confit it and then crisp it and then put a little noodle salad with jellyfish in between it. And, and a couple of scallops on top. And I just went like, what the fuck? Scallops and pork? Like, what? what is this guy thinking? Kind of like, what, what Kool-Aid is he drinking in? Where can I get some of that Kool-Aid? And so I stayed at Kitty. I worked with Pete. And then the next five years I was there are just a bit of a blur. Um, yeah, the, the business just boomed. It got so, so busy. Um, it won. I think every award that was possibly to win in in first yeah two years that he was there, um, and we worked really really hard uh, and super rewarding because like every service we just made this beautiful food and I think Pete back then was yeah not quite as refined as he is as he is now. Um, it, obviously he you know he grew within within Key and and now then Lol. Um, but the food was just so delicious and so kind of foreign, um, I think, to to most of Australia at that stage. And it was such a great learning, like, I again, just sponging around Pete, learning, uh, seeing the, the ideas that he came up with. And, uh, you know, after the five years I was there as, as, as Sue, um, yeah, it was, it was actually kind of like hard to leave, but I'm glad that I did. Um, it was it was one of those things where you go like man I, 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 there's other things that I need to explore and other things that I need to see and I was still yeah back then um, and it was really nice to to actually leave and you know, leave Key go to Claude's work with Chewy um, you know and have have legends like Tim Backpoy just walking in one day and having coffee talk to you about soy sauce and sauce and how to use the two and you know. Uh, I remember Yanni Christie's and Damien Pignolet used to come for coffees on Saturday mornings and, and there better be some petty force when these guys come because they're legends in their own right and yeah, we used to sit outside in, in that tiny little courtyard and talk about the week, talk about you know the next menu, talk about some produce they had seen or hey have we played with you know this this amazing Flinders Island stuff or have we have we you know tried the latest pork thing that was around and there was always always discussion over food. I don't think we ever talked politics. I don't think we ever talked, you know, inflation or any of the other boring stuff. It was always, hey, food. Have you tried this yet? Have have you considered doing this with this? And that was amazing. 
from there. What did I do from there? Oh, I got the opportunity to open or reopen the Montague Hotel in Melbourne. Um, and that was probably the first time me and Bron worked together. And that was great. That was such a, we go like, oh, wow. And I like, you know, my, my, my lovely wife can write a wine list and a beer list and I can do whatever food I want. And we cooked really hard. I actually, by chance, looked at a menu of the Montague a couple of weeks ago. I was thinking to myself, what we could do eat. Did you hate yourself? And yeah, I think I think I did hate myself at that stage. Kind of like, man, it was complicated, it's difficult, and it's. I think you know. I think you said it in your introduction. Young chefs have been, uh, you know, at more is more, and it turns out more is not more. Yeah, less is more. How did um, Mericoat come about? Tell us about the beginnings of that. Mericoat. So the the very first time Mericoat became an idea or, you know, the seed of an idea is that Bron and I, because Bron has always been very interested in, in wine regions. Uh, I, I kind of want and need to go back to Europe, you know, once every two years, uh, more often if I can, uh, to see mum, dad, my sister, her family. Um, and it's, it's nice just to go home every now and again. Um, and so what we started doing is kind of, we go to Europe, I spend a week with my family and the other week we pick a wine region and we were in the middle of Burgundy town, the town, I can't, I can't remember the name of the town, but there was this little calf. And the first time we walked in there, you know, there's a waiter sitting in, in the restaurant. Uh, it was maybe six o'clock, you know, smoking a cigarette and we walked in got like, uh, bonjour. And we have all, and he just shushed us away he didn't even say anything he just went like <laughs> it's like what the fuck? and so we didn't realize that the place didn't open till eight o'clock kind of like we were there you know he was about to have staff dinner got a like he was not interested in talking to guests and um, we ate somewhere else that night and on the way back to the little cottage that we were staying we walked past this restaurant and it was thumping it was so busy it sounded so joyous and it smelled like, like think French bistro, the place smit, just delicious food. So I think, I think Bron was pretty, pretty pissed that he shoot us away. So the next day I got the, you go there in your best French and you get us a table. They're like, so I, I'm, I'm lucky. I speak a little French. So I went back there. You're like, yeah, bonjour. Can I have a table? And the guy went like, yeah, yeah. Come back, come back eight o'clock. So eight o'clock, I was there and there was a queue. Man, kind of like, you know, how do I negate this? We, we couldn't get in the second night. And so the third night, we finally get in there and we we get to meet the elders and they have now heard about this, these, these two foreigners that keep showing up wrong every night. So they want to chat. And it's this young couple that, you know, opened a restaurant and, and their idea for this restaurant was that there is a wall of wine with prices on it there is a menu that's five six items and that's it and if you don't like it keep walking and if you like it sit down and have a joyous time and eat great food pick the wine you want to drink and i think both bron and i walked out of that night having you know had you know just a classic snails you know nice jihadi veal stew an incredible bottle of chablis and, and probably a bottle of pinot as well and yeah, some some amazing cheese at the end, and we walked out of there like, man, this is this is conviviality. This is exactly 
what a dining room should be and how how do we translate that into Melbourne? And then kind of, you know, I think it took another four or five years before we actually got to the stage that we went like, right, cool, we have, you know, a fistful of pennies. And, and you know, we, we didn't have a lot of money, but we, we found a site um, with a liquor license and, and, you know, the bones, the bare bones of, of building this dining room. And then we just set out to become... Yeah, what what or what became Mericot? We we build a living room, uh, uh, and it it was supposed to be our living room where we would feed people, and it was supposed to be just for the locals. It wasn't supposed to be you know award winning or had it. None of that really mattered. That just came as 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 you know we worked really hard and loved what we did, and and people started taking notice. Um, you know, Bronwyn won some amazing wine awards, but you know, she 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 is not a sommelier. She just likes pairing good wine to good food, and and serving that to people and making sure people enjoy it. Kind of like, yeah, you know, oh, you like Chardonnay, you like it oaky, buttery, um, and and we always had this kind of kind of rule that if people didn't like it, they shouldn't drink it. Like if you don't like it. We'll take the bottle. You pick something else, and kind of, you know. And and I think that that generosity, that yeah, you know, just the sheer generosity of people feeling safe in in our living room, eating our food. And yeah, you know, the first couple of years were very restauranty, kind of like yeah, you know, we had rules and protocols. And as we grew up in that space, um, we found that a lot more people came in that trusted us and went like, yeah, yeah, you guys cook, and, and put something next to it to drink. And once that started happening, that's when you you kind of achieve freedom as a as a restaurant, as a as a business, uh, as a chef, as a you know, front of house person. Because we got away with with everything, kind of like we could. Wow, oh, people people started trusting us. So yo, would you would you like some cheese? Yeah, yeah, sure. Kind of like you know, and that's that's where our know, business actually becomes self fulfilling. Uh, it's, it's it's great. You know, like I I look back. Probably with romantic romantic glasses on, because uh, I do remember that I worked pretty much every day. Because on Monday our days off, you know, and it was it was bookkeeping, and we had to go get glasses and talk to producers and do other stuff. Um, so we we yeah we worked six sometimes seven days a week, um, yeah, and we worked very long hours. It's, it's not as glorious as it sounds. Like the toilets, you know, cleaning in the morning, yeah. All the, all the paperwork behind it still needed to be done. So it, it is incredibly hard work. Uh, but I look back on that because we we achieved kind of what we shot for and this to have that safety with people um, have a great time in our dining room. Was there, were there any pork dishes over the time with Mericote, um that you had that you could share with us? Yeah. Um, so Mericote, I always, oh, Mericote was probably 90% Victorian. Uh, without having to shout Victoria, Victoria, but like I always liked the idea of having local produce. Um, and then so with pork, I used to kind of rotate through different pork growers, you know, different pork breeds through the seasons. Like I've always felt that, you know, McIver Farm has incredible uh, black Berkshires, um, but they're quite fatty. They like that big animals. So for me, that was always a, a Windsor go-to. Uh, shoulder or neck, slowly braised, uh, really nice, rich, rich pork meats with you know just enough fat to 
to line that tummy so when you walk out into you know the cold Northcote nights you still feel warm and and sated uh, during summer yeah I used to go uh, talk to Judy uh, up at Western Plains because uh, her pork is a bit leaner you know they they, they don't grow them as fatty as as, as yeah and, and good fatty like not you know insane fat and um, as the MacGyver guys uh, but then so during summer you know spring summer I used to use her loins and her fillets because they're a bit leaner um, and you know she had a bit more so I could use that and then during winter we'd use uh, Bundara or MacGyver uh, you know one of my one of my favorite winter dishes because uh, it is a bit bit fresh here this morning uh, used to be uh, used to be the the braised uh, neck um, so I used to braise the MacGyver neck roll it back into into itself take the skin off roll it back make a nice little roll uh, reduce the stock and then adds basically all the spices you would find in a chutney um, into into this stock so you end up with this chutney tasting sauce and then that I used to do like little Parisians of kohlrabi, pear, queens, apple, some cooked, some not cooked, uh, some pickled. And all of that I would put on the plate and just wrap it in uh, ribbons of kohlrabi. Maybe a little chutney oil or, you know, maybe an elk leaf because, yeah, I, I, I do like the micro herbs and the flowers. So, no, there was a, there was, there was a space for, for, you know, like just a nice little fine dining kind of touch. Um, and that, that, yeah, it was just so, so delicious. You had the crunch and the freshness and then this, this roaring piece of hot braised pork and yeah, many, many, many a mornings cause you know, that got braised overnight. I, I would come in, get a fresh white bread roll and have myself a pork sandwich, leave one for my, my, my sous chef. And yeah, it's, yeah, it's just one again, like romantic glasses, but very happy moments where you're like, man. Yes, pork in the oven. Yes, I'm no, I'm leaving late, but pork is in the oven tomorrow morning. You ended up returning to Key and leading the team with Peter Gilmore. Um, what was that experience like? And, and were there any sort of pork dishes there in that time that you can share from that experience at Key? Yeah, so when I went back, uh, originally I was only going to go back for a couple of months to help to help out Pete. Um, Pete was about to open Benelong. Uh, Rob, who's who's there, was leaving Key. Sam had, was leaving to go to uh, Hong Kong at that stage. So he was head chef, sous chef less. And so I said, oh, well, I'll help you out for a bit. Kind of like, yeah, I'm, I'm in a good position here. I can, I can do that. Um, and that, you know, little bit of helping out became, you know, nearly four and a half years uh, later, uh, which was, you know, great, great fun. Um, and it, it was a, you know, key, key is a beast, um, beast of a kitchen. It's, you know, there's 40 chefs, there's 60 front of house. It's an incredibly large team. And I was kind of lucky enough that I came in the stage where, you know, the renovation was nearly signed off on. Um, so, you know, we did probably about a year and a half of, uh, what I consider Pete's old food, uh, was still. Yeah, it was still the, the choice menu where we had entree, entree, meat, main, dessert, four choices each. Um, and I think when Pete did that, he he was, you know, Pete, Pete has the same same directive we have to feed people. So that was, yeah, it was a good, good, solid meal. And, and I don't think expensive at that stage. 
And then when we when we really stopped and think and thought about the hey we're doing this this multi million dollar resident renovation we're stripping the kitchen, building a new kitchen, redoing the dining room uh, entirely everything like we're going back to concrete. What what do we want? And Pete very early on went like man I want to be just setting eight courses. No more, no more of this choice stuff. We're just doing it so we can really, really focus on a dish and get it like just to, to, you know, inches, inches, sec, seconds from perfection. And once, I think once that decision got made, uh, it was really hard because um, we had a lot of favorites like, you know, the snow egg. It's like, no, the snow egg can't come back. Uh, the pork belly, no, can't come back. Like we actually have to, shared all these dishes and I I know Pete Pete struggled with this because you know these were solid solid dishes perfected over many years and so I think once Pete started playing with hey you know this is the menu we're building um at some stage you know he was like oh you know I got this idea for Jal and it'd be really nice if we make a sea cucumber crisp to go with it here here he goes again um and that dish is so delicious to eat so amazing to eat but it takes so much time and focus to make that you couldn't do that in a in an a la carte or even a choice menu because you just need to focus on you know getting the perfect piece of jowl getting it to the perfect temperature in the, in the right source conditions the garnish needs to be you know just chewy enough but not not chewy but it needs to be more chewy than the jowl because otherwise it all becomes the same. And then this this crisp, yeah, it used to take I think eight or nine days to make. And it was just a little just a little garnish crisp. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't even part of the dish. It was just a little garnish that we put on things. Um, and uh, yeah, it was it was great to to actually be part of part of that that you know that that little restaurant at the at the harbor again. It was just such a such a great great time i think for key like again kind of like you know it it reopened to amazing critical success again uh and i re-solidified that it is you know arguably one of the best in australia and yeah for for for, for especially for pete i think it's like you know he's been there 20 something years now well just to yeah to make that happen again it's just amazing plus you know he's running the other the other little bistro Called Benelov on the other side. Yeah, that's only 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 a little restaurant as well. So it's just amazing, amazing, and an amazing time to be part of that family. You know, it's the time that uh, Fire Door came on. We started working a bit closer with with the guys at Otto and kind of like have a bit more, you know, as a, as a group view um, as opposed to just being individual restaurants. And it was yeah, loved it. But kind of, yeah, my wife was in, in Melbourne and I, I do miss her and I do like living with her. So at some stage I went like, yeah, time to uh, time to go back to Melbourne as opposed to flying every every other week. And I have a lot of airmats from that time. Let's talk about pork for a little bit. Are there any sort of particular dishes um, or are there particular cuts that you sort of favour and that you can tell us about? No, the whole thing is good. From, from like literally... Literally, he wants to tell her, kind of like the, the whole thing, the whole thing is edible and there's not a, not a bad, bad scarab there. 
And it's, uh, you know, it'd be, it's like picking your favorite child. You can't, can't, and not, especially not when all these other people are listening. Go, that's, no, um, no, I, I do, I do have favorites, but it's when the mood strikes, you know, kind of like, it's not every day that I want to eat pork belly crackling, but feel like pork belly and crackling, it needs to be, you know, good crackling, really nicely puffed, probably, probably more the, the Chinese way than, than the European way. So you get that really airy, slushy crackling, um, but then in that same breath, I could happily, you know, have a bacon and egg sandwich. I mean, I know, I know those cuts are really close to each other, but yeah, you know, a crispy pig's ear sandwich, you know, just, you know, very lightly floured, a little bit of iceberg lettuce, QP mayonnaise, delicious. You mentioned earlier at the Surly Goat how um, there's a real celebration of the producers of the region there. Has pork found its way on the menu there? Is a dish that sort of stands out that you could tell us about? Uh, pork does, does make a regular uh, appearance. Um, again, we, we, we are guilty of, of using multiple producers. Uh, so Bundara, uh, Laura, Laura, uh, does a great job with her, her pigs. Um, there's a, a really small farm, uh, Brooklyn's, uh, near, well, near, near us. They're, they're about 45 minute drive. Uh, when they kill pigs, there's just enough for us to run a week, uh, but that that's yeah because they don't kill a lot, um, so it's it's that's a joyous moment when you like you get that phone call you go like oh yes 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 we'll take it <laughs> we'll take the whole thing, um, and then we have to figure out what we do with it. So the dishes change, um, and, and yeah, and and I have to say you know Dave, Dave bless Dave, um, <laughs> he is very guilty of changing things uh, a little too often. Uh, so we could start, you know, the week with uh, a little, you know, braced, maybe pork belly. Uh, and then, you know, because we have to move to loin, we'll, we'll change the garnish because, you know, the, the pork belly garnish could, couldn't be anywhere near the loin garnish. And then in that same week, and, you know, we only do three days there. We, we might do something else on the third day. Uh, and it's just, yeah, joyous because we're cooking every day and we're just making it up and uh, we're, we're doing some delicious, delicious food. I think I'm, I'm trying to think what did we do last with, we had a, a roasted uh, Boston, uh, sort of the neck of Bundara. Uh, we brined that for a couple of days because we, we got the delivery. We, we thought the delivery would come on a Friday and it showed up on Monday. So we went like, oh shit, uh, well, let's put it in a brine. <laughs> Just... Just for safety now that we, we haven't do something with it. Um, so we put it in like a little two and a half percent brine for a couple of days, roasted it up, and and we just served it with uh, with a little black garlic. Uh, we had some 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 uh, snow peas and just kind of like just local little. It, it wasn't actually about the stuff around it. It was about this really nice roasted piece of kind of unctuous because pork neck has this this lovely chew to it, right? Unless, unless you brace the shit out of it, when you roast it, it's kind of, it's got this lovely little, you know, you have to work for the flavor. And both Dave and I like that idea where we can use this cut and actually make people, you know, and yes, we slice it. We do the chefy thing so they, you know, they don't have to hack away with it with their, with their knife at the table. Um, but you have to actually put it in your mouth, chew it and go, 
god damn it this tastes like pork and kind of like yeah and the garnish is you know very light very you know only serve a little salmon on the side and some bread to mop up force with um but it, it, it's it, for, us, for us it was about the protein and not about the the fluff around it yeah we you know we, we want to have some some interesting things like maybe a gentleman's relish or some acid black garlic white garlic like a little puree um and then you know maybe an elk leaf if 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 we have some if we have some like that happens a lot at the goat uh do we have any oh, i don't know like this is in season uh yeah it should be right oh let's use it <laughs> well you're always doing uh interesting things rob um what do you love about what you do oh cooking you know it's it's uh, i i say this to a lot of a lot of people um the man who loves his job doesn't work a day in his life and you know cooking is is not a job it's it's a pleasure um yeah you know it looks like a job because yeah we have to do some graft and yeah we have to do some service and yeah we have to do the mise en place to get ready for service but it's it's a joy yeah and you know the surly god has an open kitchen so often people will come by like oh thank you for this amazing meal and go like yeah our pleasure now you go have yourself a great weekend and that part that little interaction is is free um but gives such joy to myself the team because we know we just did you know a good deed we we fed someone they're walking out with a full belly uh you know a deliciously well-filled belly uh with some great food and i think i think kind of that's yeah it's kind of the secret to i i think longevity in in the industry as well if you love what you do it's not work it's just you know what you do um once it becomes work you should assess what you're doing well rob as always it's an absolute pleasure to catch up and awesome to get you on the crack league today just to hear a little bit of your story um look forward to seeing you uh, in the theater as well uh, please keep in touch and we'll catch up again soon. I will, man. All right, take it easy, and uh, I'll talk to you soon, mate. Cheers. This is The Crackling, a Deep in the Weeds production in partnership with Porkstar. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we catch up with some of Australia's best chefs and pork producers to discover what makes Australian pork so special.